welcome to this episode of the Her Story Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Andrea Miller, and I'm grateful to share today's episode with you, where I got the chance to sit down and have a conversation with Gabe's Torres. Gabe's is a researcher, speaker, theologian, and psychotherapist in training. Her life's work is to show how there's nothing post about post-colonialism, and that the impact of historical and oppressive conquests continues to manifest today in our culture, language, literature, human behaviors, inter- and intrapersonal relationships, and spiritual practices. In this episode, Gabe shares her story of coming to the United States to attend Bible college, and how her experience there ignited her passion to research the practices and therapeutic approaches that decolonize the mind, body, and spirit of underrepresented groups who have been suffering from generational oppression and marginalization. Admittedly, I had so many questions for Gabe, especially about ancestral healing and connection. I'm grateful for her patience with me and her willingness to explain the deeper perspectives my mind needed to be open to. I hope this conversation speaks to your soul as much as it did mine. Gabe's welcome to the Her Story Speak podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, I am thrilled to have you and our friend, our mutual friend, Marcy Walker is who connected us. And gosh, I don't know, last, Marcy has been telling me for some time that I need to connect with you and talk to you. So I'm glad that it finally happened. I know. And what a great connection too. What a, I adore her and yeah, I actually just texted her before this. I'm like, I'm getting ready to interview her. So thank you for connecting us. Um, yeah, I love her. And she's been a guest several times on this podcast, just because I think her voice is just such an important one to listen to. But her saying that yours is as well is all is all the encouragement I need to get to talk to you. So I'm really thankful for your time today. And I will say, so before we get dive into your story, a lot of times when I talk to people, they've written books or written extensively about their life and story, and you don't have that. So I've done as much research as I can. Not yet, at least. Right. I assume that's probably coming. I think you mentioned that on maybe one of your things I heard. It's still in the works, but um, it's tough with publishing, the publishing industry. And uh, that, yeah, let's just put it that way. The publishing industry is very complex and they're in the works. (laughs) Okay, very good. So with that, I don't know as much of your story and the details of it as I normally do when I talk to guests. So I'm going to be learning a lot and hearing a lot about you right along with my listeners. So before we jump into our story, can you just tell me and my listeners, just who you are in your day-to-day. They've already heard like your professional bio, your extensive professional bio in an intro because I pre-recorded an intro for you. Um, But just tell me who Gabe's is day-to-day, where you live, all of that. Yeah. Um, So again, my name is Gabe's Torres. I am currently based in Duwamish territory, which is widely known as Seattle, Washington. I've been here since 2016 for school. I completed two master's degrees, one on theology, a master's in theology and culture, where I focused on post-colonial studies and post-colonial trauma, which then um, I wanted to do more on racial trauma and post-colonial trauma. So added the master's in counseling psychology and um, trying to see how we can both address and attend or treat racial trauma from a clinical capacity so that so these two programs are then translated into my everyday um, existence right now as a psychotherapist here in the area. I work at um, this organization called Mend Institute, and we're going through a lot of changes ourselves now that we are right now QT BIPOC, which means queer, trans, Black, Indigenous, and people of color centered. Um, where our clinical services and our therapeutic approaches are, n- are decolonized. So that's another way of saying that we are detaching from Western approaches of what it's like to look into wellness and well-being and mental health. And as I know for myself, I can't say that everybody knows this, but um, I know from my experience around studying psychology and mental health, there's been a, uh, an overwhelming um, prioritization of the white psyche of whiteness and the white body and so there's not well one there's not a lot of representation in the mental health worlds for black indigenous and people of color uh, you know as clinicians and so how then can um, the mental health world here in North America then create a space that is safe and that is com- 
that is able to see the complexities of you know, systematic oppression for, um, for clients who, are, who identify as BIPOC as well. So all that to say is that I'm in that world of, and I know that it's, it's not accessible. <laughs> and so we're trying, or at least in my work, um, we're trying as best as we can to make it accessible and also accommodating. So we offer low cost um, clinical services to these clients while also honoring to the, uh, to the therapist of color. So along with that profession, I also um, host or facilitate this workshop on ancestral interconnectedness. We, I do so in a monthly basis where it's a BIPOC only space and we basically engage with you know, the themes of, of what it's like to connect with your ancestors through your body intuition, through your own story, and through just who you are, especially with um, growing awareness around in inherited trauma and inherited stories. Uh, there has been research, and I know that even before this research has been confirmed, this has already been um, an intuitive awareness for a lot of Black, Indigenous, and people of color where we have uh, passed down realities, passed down stories that are stored in our bodies and that our bodies and our psyches remember. We remember through our dreams. We remember through our inherited um, body or heartache. We even inherit resilience and medicine. And uh, for instance, I always say that for whatever you choose to do, um, as a person and as a professional, like it's a point of reference to who your ancestors were. For instance, I also love music and I love healing. And perhaps that is a point of reference to ancestors whom I actually probably don't even know um, what their names are, that they in their pre-colonial communities were also healers, were also musicians, were also leaning into the same uh, ways of expression and communication and what it's like to, to be in a community um, the same way that I am right now. So I'm not a self-explanatory being. I did not come from a vacuum. I'm part of a constellation of stories and of people and of communities, whether in my bloodline or not. Um, and I guess it's like a very, I guess like if I were to like summarize all that I do in a day-to-day -day basis, it would be like, what is it like it would, to ask myself and others like, what is it like to be in this um, ecosystem? What is it like to be um, a part of a community and a community of communities? Um, there's this South African proverb or philosophy called Ubuntu, which means I am because we are. And here in North America, especially where individualism has been so normalized, um, I think that there is, like, I feel like um, a very urgent need um, and also desire to be able to help reframe folks and say we are interdependent um, yeah. we are an, an individual and also we affect and impact one another in ways that we probably don't even see and not just in the collective sense but intergenerational sense yeah i love that because i think so many people can't see that and has not been given the value and the importance and it's it is, I think, just now, like you said, coming up more and more, like this this trauma that's passed down, especially with the Black, Indigenous, and people of color, the, the trauma that's not, if it's not dealt with. And like you said, it's harder for them to get the services. They're just not there. And it's all been based on whiteness. Um, so I love what you're doing. And I'm so curious just to get into your story of how you got into that because, and how you got to North America. And so, yes. So I want to talk more about um, specifically like the, our ancestors and stories and right. And the, some of the work you do with that, I want to dive into that deeper, but before we do, can we talk about your story? I guess you not talk about, it. I'm curious to know, I want you to hear you tell um, kind of your origin story where you were born, your parents and kind of just, walk us through. I know you moved around a lot. English is not your first language. So dive in and talk about you, the early years. Um, I'm born and raised in the Philippines. I actually have, um, like my citizenship is still in the Philippines. The only reason why I'm here is for a school. I have an, an international student status or an F1 visa. 
But yeah, I was born and raised there. I grew up in a town called Los Banos Laguna, and Laguna is south from Manila, and Manila is the capital of the Philippines. Um, yes, it means the bathrooms. Um, Los Banos means the bathrooms um, in Span, or is translated in bathrooms in Spanish. And that is well, one that's a reflection of our own colonized reality, where um, a majority of our language, which in my case is Tagalog. Has a lot of Spanish words, okay. um, and second is that you know I grew up in um, a town that has a lot of hot spring resorts. Um, I was surrounded by hot spring resorts, um, rice fields, um, basically provincial life in the Philippines. Um, where in order to get to more of an urban landscape, it'll take like a two three hour jeepney and then bus ride. Yeah. And I mean, I loved it. I loved it so so much. I didn't ever think about. Um, leaving the country, neither did I want to because I thought that the need, and it's still in some ways, the need is still there. Um, I grew up wanting to be a journalist and wanting to expose and challenge um, governmental leaders who were clearly abusing their power um, in corrupting the government that perpetuates poverty. Um, so basically, like, it's not uncommon to see slums, to see um, children in the streets begging for money without any shoes. So in my own upbringing, I was already exposed to a lot of the results of a corrupt government and later realized that it was also a result of, you know, a colonized history. Um, and when did you first start? Because I read that somewhere that you did. You, from a younger age, wanted to be a journalist. And it's like you just said, expose this corruption. When did you just start realizing uh-huh. You did Around your research you. really well. <laughs> I did. I read a, I'm used to a book, so I had to like look at everything I could. So I'm just curious, you know, at what point in a child's life do they start realizing like the injustices and they look around and like this, this isn't right. Oh, it's very young, maybe about early teen years, maybe even like 13, 14. Um, and I also am a descendant of I would say like revolutionists and folks who did resist um, in my family. So I come from a lineage of educators and leaders, yeah. a lot of folks who not just taught and that in and of itself is already an honorable vocation. Folks who also started schools um, in certain parts of the country in the archipelago country. And so for us to combine together education and social justice work, that was normal for me. That was normal for my family. Um, social justice work was just something that, again, like, is if as long as you're a betia, which is my mom's um, maiden name, or Natores, like it's it's inevitable to, to start talking about how do we expose and um, and challenge and put pressure on oppressive forces and oppressive people. And I every time that I hear somebody else who didn't have that same passion when I was younger, I was always confused because <laughs> I'm like, how could you not want, you know, how could you not respond yeah. to such pre prevalent and pervasive um, atrocities? And even more, like I, every year we had typhoon season. So just the, like it, there's already poverty and to, just thinking about the families that have very fragile homes and whose roofs uh, roofs will just like fly out because of how strong the winds are. Just like our family would always intervene. It's not a matter of if, but when we do intervene with distributing relief goods. Um, yeah, so basically yes. like heavily involved. With, yeah, that passion for justice, it's, it literally was in your DNA and this mm -hmm. is your life's work. Um, so yeah, I just, I, I think that's really fascinating just how yeah. people, their origins really do set them up for that. Um, so I also know you moved around a lot. So how, tell me a little bit about that and how you ended up here in America, if it was just for education or let's start out with your moving around and that. Yeah. So we moved a lot when I was young because my mom wanted to, like she has a school as the business. So she always had to find different locations that would accommodate to her needs. So e even within the Philippines, we moved around a lot, moved uh, when I was 10, like, you know, stayed temporarily in the United States and in Japan, etc. And then later, I had the opportunity to go to, I don't know if you've heard of Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. 
there's this draw to American education. And um, at the time I was more interested in ministry, thought I might combine ministry and social justice. And then my cousins went to Moody. So it's kind of like, um, uh, not necessarily like an expectation, but like a hope to get higher education in the United States. Okay. So I went to Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. Um, so can I, I'm going to stop you real quick because I am curious. So in the Philippines, is Christianity prevalent faith? Tell me the role of faith in your yeah. upbringing and what drew you to Moody. I mean, that expectation, but. Yeah, so we are considered a Protestant Filipino family, but it's a different okay. kind of Christianity or Protestant Christianity when you're in the Philippines. Okay. Because there's a lot of like, I guess like, I don't want to use the word residue, but like remnants of banished Catholicism from 300 years of being um, colonized by Spaniards for yeah, 300 years. So if I say Protestant, a Protestant Christian faith, it might even look differently when I, that for sure was something that I had to encounter when I moved or when I studied at Moody, where there's like this, um, there are different branches of what it mm-hmm. means to, to revere this God. But yeah, I grew up in a Protestant Christian home. Okay. My dad was Catholic. Mom was Protestant. Eventually, like it, we considered ourselves Protestant. And even in my own like faith journey as a Filipina in, in Los Baños, like we moved from being Presbyterian and then me being charismatic. And then there's just a lot of movement there and a lot of exploration mm-hmm. and um which in that context wasn't that much of a big deal as much as it has been when i came here in the united states where you have to be like set or with your denomination mm-hmm. or with how you perceive salvation with how you perceive the eucharist etc cetera, etc cetera. Yeah. So, um so there's that curiosity around the church and i know that in a subconscious level, there was also a curiosity as to why Christianity is a thing in the Philippines that younger Gabe's was probably like really drawn to. And so four years studied theology and um, more specifically like historical theology and philosophy. And, you know, Moody yeah, it's an interesting place. I'm not going to like say anything more other than it no, was- you, you can. I mean, I can't <laughs> imagine that. So that's your first exposure to living in America, going to Moody, Moody Vital Institute. Correct. So it was okay. very, it's a very conservative theological, it's, it's a very conservative place. Um, I would say that racism, sexism, patriarchy, and misogyny are so normalized there. Yeah that and and it's tough because it's me coming from a you know a country that where i'm part of the majority so when it comes to like microaggressions and when it comes to like racist encounters it can get really confusing to me and at that time it made more sense for me to assimilate because of the non-us citizen aspect in which there's this fear of needing to comply of needing to behave and of needing to assimilate before you can get in trouble into trouble and then you are then susceptible to getting not just kicked out of the school but kicked out of the actual country and then have your education be at risk so and yeah so it, it was i'm still at a point where i am metabolizing and processing all that was experienced and moody but also trying to conserve my energy from from having to do so because it, it was it, it just takes up a lot and i i'm not putting words in your mouth but i mean yes all those things prevalent at moody the racism the patriarchy the sexism that's kind of was probably America in a nutshell, if we're being if we're being honest. So you had that from both sides. So were you surprised if you had this image of what America was like or freedom or whatever? Were you taken aback when you got here and that was your experience? Absolutely. I particularly was taken aback and quite turned off by the narcissism, especially amongst professors have this sense of like heightened confidence that they have access to the word of God. Like they would call it authorial intent where in my brain, I'm like, you know, who are you to say? Like, who are you? That is such an exceptional way of viewing yourself that you in your, you know, in your culture, in your own lens that you have direct contact to the word of God in its essence without it being filtered through your framework your biases so i was taken aback by that in their hermeneutic or their way of interpreting scripture and seeing that arrogance manifest in the way that they do relationship in the way that 
they even like justify their own racist, sexist um, acts and comments that this was like compliments, you know, this is like confirmed yeah. by the Bible. And so that yeah. in of itself was like the thing that would absolve or not even absolve, but yeah, justify their, their dehumanizing. Um, yeah. And we're seeing over and over, not just Moody, but the crumbling of that institution, like the faults, like, you know, I don't, the whole thing with Liberty University now, you know, it's, things are coming and I hope more and more to the surface and maybe we're starting, can, can start over and wipe all this away. I mean, it's only been for me the last couple of years where my faith has really evolved that I've really started to question and look at things because I've always been in the white majority and most of these things fit. But like about the whole woman thing and raising daughters that just didn't fit that narrative. That's when it started to hurt me and my eyes have been opened. And it's like, it's so, so sad, the church in America, but we can't be hopeless. So do you feel like with things really becoming exposed and seeming out of control that maybe this is a place to start, start over? I mean, I, we can talk about colonization and colonialism and we're not really post any of that. Um, so I don't know. I'm just curious where, where your thoughts are now with the current state of all of this. Yeah. At this point, I don't think we are in a collective level. We are ready to see the redemption and the hope yet. I feel like there's a lot to reckon with first knowing that, um, based on qualitative research and also my own book research, knowing that Christianity and American Protestantism and Catholicism, just the name of God, simply the name of God have been used or weaponized for the furtherance of oppression, that it is the most active component of imperialism. And that again, like there's this idea around just because you're called by God means that for you to conquer means that it is not just okay, but it is your, you know, your rightful place. Right. Right. So I don't think we're ready yet. I think part of our hope is to, again, like have to boldly face and repent if we're going to use Christian language. And when I say repent, I mean to literally like turn away from this way of this belief system that there is a hierarchy of human dignity and that at the top of this hierarchy is white, is cis male, cis meaning, cisgendered meaning you identify with the sex that was assigned to you at birth. Um, mostly white, cis, male, able-bodied, that this is the best reflection of God and that that has to be dismantled. And I don't think we're there yet. Yeah, you're right. When you go into all of those details, yeah, you're exactly right. We're not, we're just very, I think we're just starting to scratch some things off and we have so, so far to go. So hearing your first four years experience in the United States and now knowing where you're at, I read that it's your life's work is to demonstrate how there's nothing quote post about post-colonialism. So how did you get from that four years at Moody and just being really kind of discombobulated with your experience to this is now your life's work. Did that start to fuel your passion for it? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think that the me having to see the horror of how the faith and how spirituality have been weaponized for, again, the furtherance of oppression, I, I, don't, I don't feel like there is a, an, another way to respond other than yeah. to call it out, you know, right. especially when there are people who are literally like seeking a sense of belonging in their spirituality and their community. And so in that place of, of longing and of vulnerability, like I, I don't want them to be um, at risk of any sort of abuse of power and even like at risk of them perpetuating that abuse of power simply because they want to find healing simply because they want to find belonging and so with and i also see that within myself like he i keep like referring to um to like desire for longing and belonging onto other people but i see that in myself as well where if if not for experiencing moody or in spaces that are you know mostly white and who respected white male intelligence. Like I was often told that, oh, you're a theology major, meaning that you're probably going to marry a pastor, or you're probably going to be a worship leader and use your theological degree for education. And whenever I'm about to say that, I'm actually going to use it for teaching. I'm actually going to use it for leadership. Like I always have to like internally assess whether this person is going to, you know, to attack me verbally and to invalidate the desire or to laugh at me even. Uh, and to condescend me. So if not for these experiences of of harm um, and of marginalization and of isolation and being condescended, 
content. And not to say that my impulse is coming from a place of like, oh my gosh, vengeance. It's not like that. No, I totally, I don't take it that way at all. I mean, you just saying these things makes you want to cheer up because it's like my own daughter experienced those same things in the church. I mean, she's a strong woman and told things. I mean, that's what really started opening my eyes when she's being told, well, you can't be a, a preacher. I mean, you, what do you mean you want to do this? Don't you just, I'm, you want to be at stay? I mean, similar things to you, but then I think about the intersectionality of, I mean, she's a white girl, right. so she's got the woman thing. She doesn't have right. the other things that so many... Right. Like yeah, it's one thing to be a woman. It's another thing to yeah. be a, a brown or black woman, indigenous woman. It's another thing to be a queer, um, yeah. black, brown um, woman. Um, or even like when we talk about like gender, like a non-binary femme. Mm -hmm. So I appreciate the way that you hold it in from an intersectional framework and seeing the many ways in which we have been socialized and we've been marginalized and we've been also privileged. Yeah. And I'm curious and I want to we'll circle back around so many things. Through my head. How have you because I think that's where I find myself struggling a little bit. And I see my own daughter who's just almost 18. So she's very young in her journey, but already been hurt by the church. Um, mm -hmm. And it can make you want to turn away from the church, which the church is a building we know, but how have you, I guess, reckoned with even God? Like how and not, you know, I mean, that's a really loaded question, but I'm just curious, like kind of your, how that experience, I mean, it, it can make people turn away from the faith for yeah. sure. And yeah. so, but I know you are a spiritual person and God um, is important in your life. So yeah. how, how have you kind of reckoned with that? Mm -hmm. I'm still reckoning with it. Yeah. And I, I try not to operate from a place of fear and that it has been what white evangelicalism has taught me, like fear of hell, fear of, you know, being um, a sinner, fear of sin, fear of lust, fear of the flesh, basically. Yeah. yeah. So it was me having to really know, you know, I guess like my story, who I am in there in and that includes like the history, right? Like, why did I even like succumb myself to this faith tradition? Yeah. Um, is it, yes, it's a family thing, but let's look way, way back. This is why ancestry is really important to me. And to, I guess like, I, I don't know. Of course you've heard of Richard Rohr, Father Richard. Like that's how Marcy and I met. We I thought that it was because her <laughs> and I have had several conversations about Richard Rohr and she told me about her experience there. And yeah. he's been really a good good thing in my life. Um, his books have really helped my journey in that. So mm -hmm. I kind of thought that that's how you and Marcy met each other. Um, We've been the same that. group. Yeah. I think that, that retreat was like my reconstruction phase. And, yeah. and I feel like with progressive evangelicalism, it's pretty common to talk about the deconstruction stage, which is important. Like you do need to put certain things to death in order to find mm -hmm. rebirth. But I feel like people haven't like stepped a little bit farther from the deconstruction realm and actually like find ways to integrate again like to reconstruct reorder and i feel like in spaces like that um, which i find really unfortunate considering that it's not as common in my you know in my town or anywhere for that matter it was just a once a year kind of thing um like i i feel like they're in that group they did not come from a place of fear and I saw it in the way that Father Richard specifically, and a lot of people too, like weren't afraid of the possibility that there might be other names in which God bears. Like if, what if, you know, what if the the divine or the supreme being in other faith traditions is the same as my, you know, it's the same as my Jesus, my brown Jesus. Mm -hmm. So that shows some element of, you know, universality where what if another person's religion, I don't want to use the word religion, but like sense of spirituality right. is less valid um, than of Christianity. And I know that in the evangelical church the, or the white evangelical church, there's like that fear of syncretism, which is a, a saying that you can't fuse the Christian faith with other beliefs and ideologies. But in my head, I'm like, well, it's already, it's already syncretistic because it's already combined with, with white American, white American dream um, philosophies already. So who are we to say that we actually have the purest essence of a certain faith tradition? And who's like, why is that the most important thing? Why is the most important thing to be right, to be right. precise, to, to get this doctrine or this dogma, uh, you know, to, to have it as expressed as closely as possible to how, you know, Paul or the writer of Hebrews have written it. 
think you're exactly right when you're saying that. I'm like, that all goes back to this colonialism and white supremacy. I mean, it's all so related. And for people that don't know what colonialism and post-colonialism, can you just give that in a nutshell, what that means? Because we both, we both keep using those terms. And since that is your passion, and I do think it's all related to where we're at now, the white evangelicals, all of that. Can you just tell in a, in a nutshell what it is? And then we'll all get your book when it comes out to really dig into what it is. From, from my own research on it, colonialism is oppression in the forms of conquest and exploitation. Um, it assumes that, again, like there's this hierarchy of power and dignity amongst peoples and that there are people who are at the top or above or, and those who are below. And those who are uh, above um, assume and also impose that their ways and their beliefs, their own characteristics are the right ways of what it means to be human, of what it means to exist. So that includes their identity, their skin tone, their ideas, their language, their God, their sense of spirituality, their security and their well-being and them being uh, protected outrank and are more important than of anybody else's, especially those who are below. So colonizers then invade and then exploit a vulnerable people or a vulnerable country and steal their land and resources based on that assumption that because of their identity of being at the top, which is which is white Eurocentric identity, it is then their destiny and their right to claim these resources and to violate and exploit the bodies of the colonized. And so the, the land theft, the theft of resources, the violence, the invasion, um, the rape, the sexual violence, and the brainwashing are all quote-unquote justified by this unconscious belief of that hierarchy and of their place in that hierarchy. So that's like the, the impulse or the motivations behind colonialism that comes in the forms of colonization itself or conquest of occupation. Um, it comes in the form of um, of racism, of of sexism, of patriarchy, etc. Right. So everything we just talked about. So that is, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, and that's how this country was founded. And the Philippines it had an experience that as well. But this country was founded on that. And that's why we see all of those things permeating within our country. So for people to say we're post-colonized or we're post-colonialism, I mean, that's just not true because we're still seeing all of these things play out. Yeah. And you see that in, I used to say in previous interviews that the spirit of colonialism continues with ideology, but I think that I, that that part was missing. And that I would say too, that even today, like indigenous communities are still displaced Mm -hmm. and uh, reparations are still not a thing. And, you know, like it also takes place not just in the spiritual or ideological level, but also in a systemic and societal level for sure. So, yeah, there's nothing close about post-colonialism in that systemic sense. And also in the way that we, um, even in our own imaginations and our own like sensibilities, um, it's white supremacy. It's not if, but when white supremacy mm-hmm. comes up in me um, as a non-Black POC and in, in everybody Right. And I know a big part of your work, like we touched upon, is you feel very called to help with this healing process of the Black, Indigenous, people of color um, and with the therapeutic part of it. And that's why, is that why you assume you got into the mental health field? Because it's it's connected and it's a missing missing part of that. Um, I'm so curious and intrigued to hear more about, though, um, your healing with that, the workshops you do how you bring in ancestors and the importance. I mean, I, like I said, I know we touched on that, but just a little bit deeper of like how you bring that in. Um, yeah. yeah. And part of, I want to say first that it's still, it wasn't easy and it still isn't easy because of being a colonized subject where my own spirituality has been colonized in a way that there's this binary that if it's not Jesus, then it's evil. You know, like yeah. if you don't call on the name of Jesus, spirit, if it's some, it's if it's a different spirit, then it must be of Satan, or it must be you know. It, there's that clear duality around that, and so that internalized duality still shows up in my in my continued ancestral um, healing journey. So just want to say that at the beginning that I'm still learning. That I'm still. Um, I think I will always and forever be learning, just as we all are. 
Um, but I came across it again, like as I furthered into my study around, we have 14 generations of, of stories in our bodies. Um, there has been, yeah. If you could even think about it, like just the substantial amount of experiences that we have. Um, so the average, like most people have four in their, in their bodies holding on to 14 generations. Mm-hmm. That is so fascinating. So okay. if you, yeah. And if you think about that in a collective trauma and systemic tr- oppression level, for instance, like how, what, how would that mean for a black person who has inherited 14 generations of ancestral memory? How would that mean for an indigenous person? How would, you know, if you could just, right. it's, it's overwhelming enough. Yeah. It's yeah. already too much. I think it maybe was Maisha Hill head on. And she talked about just this, her ancestors, you know, being slaves and our, that's that trauma still being felt through her generation and coming out. And I mean, that is makes perfect sense when you say that if we're holding on to 14 generations of trauma and if we're looking at marginalized people like and if we're looking at the world of mental health here in the western world we there's no imagination to see beyond the individual client right like we only a lot of folks in the mental health world only see the patient as a single singular entity and again coming from an individualistic like a radically individualistic um context and language they do not attend to the possibility or the potential for that trauma to be, you know, both theirs and also that of their parent and of their parents' parent. Um, And so that was, again, like my own, um, my own process around like, okay, what have I, what have I um, assumed? What, what is still felt in me that, is not that was probably my lola or my grand grandmas mm-hmm. like i think about how much my grandparents were all in world war ii my grandma was a spy during world war ii oh. my grandpa um was a general and another grandpa was a colonel in the air force oh. um and thinking about how um even like thinking about my pre-colonial ancestors and how they had to also resist against um, oppressive forces and um, Spanish and American colonizers, like just thinking about how much their own passion for freedom, like it's it, it wouldn't surprise me that the freedom that I feel is also theirs. Mm-hmm. So I always like give myself that that moment of pause in that room and also wanting to give that for others. Like, what is it like for you to know that your own desire for justice for healing is yours and also that of your ancestors. So that's like one of the things that we engage with in our time together at the workshop. Um, And do you encourage folks to find out the stories of their ancestors and dig into the past and learn those things? While that is encouraged for a lot of folks, it's not accessible. Yeah. That's the sad part about one of the heartbreaking things about colonization is that there is an attempt to wipe out culture, right? There's an attempt to even ban language. And so there's multiple barriers. And if we think about like the, the complex, like the different identities and stories of these BIPOC participants, we also have transracial adoptees where there is like a deliberate um, from their um, birth parents so what is it like, like, it's, it's heartbreaking for them to do that, you know, the traditional ways of doing research, because it's, um, again, like banned or inaccessible, limited, even colonized in a sense where I know for my Philippine his, uh, for Filipino history books, they've always labeled the American colonizer as a hero. And so I can't consult this material um, because it's not very truthful to what had actually happened. So in this case, what is it like to then lean into what we have inherited, the memory Mm -hmm. that seems to speak? So as much as we honor the intellectual pursuit, which is as important, the investigation of traditional, you know, the traditional ways of research, while carrying like a a certain level of suspicion, you know, 
what is it like to also look into our body? Where's the tension? Where's the ache? When do you feel like your breathing got shallow or that you felt a twitch when we talked about this part about colonization or about ancestry? And then we inspect and ask questions while we also um, have this posture that we don't have to be right all the time and that being right is not the point. Yeah. Being able to bear witness and to be together as we bear witness is the point. Being able to believe each other um, is the point. Being together is the point. Right. And I know I read one of the activities you also do, um, I don't know if I call it activities, exercises, <laughs> is writing the letters to ancestors. Can you talk about a little bit about that? Because I just think that's really, really just a deep exercise that I'd love to learn more about. Yeah, so we actually don't write letters to our ancestors. Okay. We write letters from our ancestors. Um, okay, I, re I, I read it wrong because it's such a no, boring concept to me that I'm like, you write. Okay, so yes, tell me. Yeah, so um, we will have a space where we kind of like, depending on where a person's at and how they're comfortable, in some ways we kind of like invoke the spirit and the presence of our ancestors in a way that is boundaried, in a way that is like hospitable to both ourselves and also to our ancestors. Um, I don't want to assume that everybody has done that before or everybody mm -hmm. is like up for a certain level of invoking, but mm -hmm. what is it like to, in the way, and it's not just like writing, right? Like what if other folks are more connected to their spirit, their their, themselves or their bodies through movement by record like I would invite folks that if they if they are um, neurodiverse or if they're differently able to grab like an audio recording mm -hmm. device to record themselves and to just free associate or to get into the stream of consciousness and what if they're communicating to you how does it you know what does it sound or, or what are they saying so they would and I know I'm going to stop you because I know I have listeners because my listener base is probably primarily white Christians and they're like, what is she talking about? This is like sac <laughs> sacrilegious. Is this like, so I already know that's going through their mind and I am in the learning process too. And my faith is evolving. So I'm being dishonest if I'm saying, oh, I don't know about that. Like, ugh. so <laughs> I'm not looking for justification of it at all. I'm just saying, what do you say to people that are like, no, that is just not aligned with God and Jesus's work and what the Bible says to be doing. Right. Then I move on. Okay. <laughs> we will move on because yeah. I think people have to like, this goes back to what we talked about before. We have just this Americanized Christian of like our way, one way, this is how we interpret the Bible. This is how we connect with God. And it's so much deeper than that. I mean, we're just taking it at such a surface level if we're not realizing, I mean, God is so deep and in so many things and ways to connect with him are so much more than we think. Right. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I guess like I, okay, maybe I won't move on, but I will. Like, ask you can, because I'm like, I'm sure this will push your buttons. But I feel like I have to ask the questions that I know people are thinking that I'm thinking. <laughs> too. Right. Having to be in like white Christian spaces all the time. Like, mm -hmm. It, it, I already can sense or pick up on certain folks who already made a decision about what I'm going to say. So it's yeah. like a matter of me preserving my energy. But I get it. I do get that for sure. And I don't want to exhaust you with that. So Right. But if there happens to be a more curious soul, then I would ask them, like, what makes you think that death is the finality? Mm. Or um, I would then ask them about, like, how, what their engagement is about around death. I would basically like in therapist style, like ask more questions. Like, where did you get that idea from? If you had that like visceral reaction and resistance to it, then where does that come from? Where does that come from? And then mm. we will engage further into it. Like it's not a formulate process. And I don't right. want to lean in a formula since we all come from different family backgrounds, different education backgrounds. And so what is it like to untangle that a bit? And you just, you made me like, I'm going to hold myself from tears because you saying that just really hit me. Cause you know, when you were first describing this, getting in touch with the spirits, I'm like, oh, I don't know if my mind can go there. But when you just said, what do you think about death? Like my dad just died in January. Mm -hmm. So that really makes it hit home. Like, do I really think that he's just done and gone and still where I last saw him and buried? Yeah. Um, so no, I don't. So this is, mm -hmm. 
yeah, that's how it hits home. That if we, if we really believe that it's beyond death, that death does not have the final say, then how can we deny that we still can't connect with our ancestors and our past? So that's all you had to say to me, Gabes. I got it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I'm going to not tear up here, but all right. So that is the exercise that you do. And you write a letter from them if you're um, Mm -hmm. able to do that. Mm-hmm. And if you're, if you, that's the the form of which how you want to express what their voices might sound like or yeah. be like for that moment, and then huh. then later write um, or um, express a message to our descendants. If and again, like this is me wanting to. Uh, I always preface it in a way that says that our ancestors and our descendants don't necessarily have to be in our bloodline. And I say this specifically to those who don't want to have uh, biological children mm-hmm. and those who can't have biological children um, and those who um, who have lost um, biological children. So what is it like to see the fullness of descendants and of ancestry um, mm-hmm. and write like a time capsule or a documentation for them as a, not just like as a, message of you know this is me but also like hope you know a message of hope Mm -hmm. a message of 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 how my decisions in my life have trickled down to who you are Mm -hmm. have formed who you are that i have a part of me in you in your very dna and and i write and i do this activity because of the fact that there's already limited access to ancestry and so what is it like to kind of like counteract that and have some form of preservation that we can have um, for them, for those who will come um, after us, as much yeah. as we engage with the ones who came before us. So it's kind of like a time of, of, of reflecting, what is it like for me to be an ancestor? Yeah, yeah. And just imagining doing what you're talking about, writing either a letter from my dad to me or me a letter to my daughters or granddaughters future granddaughters like I can sense how that could be healing I I wouldn't have honestly getting into this interview I'm like I don't really understand any of that but right now talking I'm like I can totally just see how healing that can be in this process um oh we're, we're closing in on our time games. So I got to, is there anything um we're gonna still you know I want people to know where they can find you but anything you feel like we didn't say or that you want to say or add to this conversation? Ooh, that's a good question. I would say there are multiple things that come to mind. And I think that for, for the folks who are listening, and I believe that majority of them are Christian and who identify as white as well, but I would, um, I would wonder with you, like, what is it like to be, decentered <laughs> what is it like to actually find yourself and this is going full circle like find yourself in an ecosystem where each species is just as important as you and that an ecosystem or an ecology will only thrive when everybody and every species thrives and that includes like not just um not just in the the areas of access and resources but also spirituality and I know that that is a huge, brave ask to to wonder with me about that. What if um, other faith traditions are just as important as your own? And to lean into like the visceral reaction from hearing that. Why do I hear that? What have been the internalized stories and rigidities potentially um, that caused me to have this reaction to that invitation? Yeah. yeah. That's really, that's so good. I mean, I've not, I've never heard it asked that way mm-hmm. about the inclusivity in the other religions and how we need others to function. Because again, I've been raised in that very white mainstream Christian, but that's such a good and, thought. And if Richard Rohr is like the one person that y'all, you know, are holding on to in that, this realm of universality, he says, um, that we that when we include we transcend mm-hmm. it's not the other way around when we are inclusive then we transcend what's your favorite and we'll wrap up because I'm just curious I've read a couple of his books I love Universal Christ um, what's your favorite Richard Rohr book 
Do you have one? Universal is too hard. Christ. Universal Christ was like, I think that's his, what's the term? Manifesto? Is it the manifesto? I think so. You <laughs> might be right. I think that, I think Father Richard has experienced a lot of life and his language has changed. I mean, all of us have experienced a lot of life, especially when we get to, to the end of our life. And I feel like this one captures the fullness of what his life and how much he has transformed. So yeah. that's why I love this book um, because of that. I would agree. I would agree. Well, Gabe, tell us where you can be found if folks want to connect with you. Mm -hmm. You can find me at um, all the social media platforms, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at Gabe's Torres. I also have a website, gabestourist.com. And for those of you who identify as Black, Indigenous, and people of color and who probably want to like lean into this conversation of ancestral interconnectedness, you can find that info on my Instagram and also on my website, gabestourist.com. Yeah. And yeah, that's me. Yeah. And on your um, website, there are a lot of other, you list past podcasts that you've done or speaking engagements that you have coming up and workshops. So we'll make sure we link all of that up in the show notes um, for you. And we'll look forward to your book when it comes out one of these years. Okay. Gabe, I've, I've so appreciated this hour of your time. Um, yeah. You never know how the conversations are going to go. And this is why when you said, do I have questions lined up? I'm like, <laughs> okay. not exactly because we're just going to talk and see where th things go. So I appreciate just your heartfelt communication with me and um, just sharing your life's work. Appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me. What an honor. Yes. It was a delight.